This is episode number 747 with Kirill Aramenko, the founder and CEO of Super Data Science. Today's episode is brought to you by Intel and HPE Esmeral Software, and by Profits of AI, the leading agency for AI experts. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today we've got a special episode with a very special individual, Kirill Aramenko. If you don't already know him, Kirill is founder and CEO of Super Data Science, an e-learning platform that is the namesake of this very podcast. He founded the Super Data Science Podcast in 2016, and he hosted the show until he passed me the reins three years ago. He's reached more than 2.6 million students through the courses he's published on Udemy, making him Udemy's most popular data science instructor. Today's episode is perhaps the most technical episode of this podcast ever, so it will probably appeal most to hands-on practitioners like data scientists and ML engineers, particularly those who already have some understanding of deep learning. In this episode, Kirill details the history of the attention mechanism in natural language models, how compute-efficient attention is enabled by the transformer, a transformative deep neural network architecture. He talks about how transformers work across each of five distinct data processing stages, how transformers are scaled up to power the mind-blowing capabilities of large language models such as modern generative AI models, and he fills us in on why knowing all of this is so helpful and lucrative in a data science career. All right, you ready for this exceptionally deep episode? Let's go. Kirill, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. You've been here so many times, actually, even since I've been host of this show. But many of our listeners probably know you as the founder and the original host of the Super Data Science Podcast. You hosted it for four years. And now that we're in 2024, it's been more than three years that I've been hosting. So by this time next year, we'll be neck and neck in terms of total episodes hosted. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Very excited about that. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. I'm excited to welcome me. I'm excited to be back on the show. Um, and yeah, John, time flies like <laughs> three years that you've been hosting. It's uh, how do you feel? Uh, I, I feel a lot more comfortable than I did the very first okay. episodes when you Kirill prepared for me this huge document. It's like 30 pages long which was amazing. This was before ChatGPT, so you know he typed that. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, yeah. And it had just tons of useful tips for me getting started on the show. Um, and then we did one episode co-hosting together, and then yeah. all of a sudden that was it. I was yeah. thrown in the deep end. And so those first few episodes, I was certainly a bit nervous, but now it's two episodes a week, so I'm pretty comfortable Every once in a while, we have a guest on that I'm intimidated by. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah. You're not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, good, man. Good. Um, but uh, yeah, so great to have you here. Where are you calling in from, Carol? Um, Australia, Gold Coast, as usual for me these days. Usual and uh, 
you're in Canada, right? With family. I am in Canada with my family. So we're recording this one over the holidays. And I've yeah. had a wonderful time here. Yeah. 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 Three more days left of 2023. It's been a crazy year with uh, a lot of uh, AI ML breakthroughs and uh, LLM is the new big thing, right? Yeah, for sure. LLMs, they have been a big thing for a while, but certainly the end of 2022 was when with the release of ChatGPT, people, I think, became aware of at least the, the technology, the, the user interface of yeah. this technology. And yeah. so, yeah, it's exciting to have an episode now dedicated, Carol, to large language models, which no doubt throughout 2024 going to continue to be a huge deal. Yeah, uh, for sure. And for years beyond. I, I, I don't yeah. think there's any doubt that, that it's, I think the thing that replaces LLMs is probably some ways away. It'll probably be things that kind of combine. I think what's, what's next in AI will probably involve still LLMs. So everything that you're going to cover in today's episode is going to be relevant for a long time. I'm super excited about the content that we're covering today. I can't wait to learn from you. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, I'm super pumped as well. Like preparing for this podcast. Um, I guess uh, I guess I'll start a bit earlier. Um, last time we appeared on the show with Lan, we were talking about cloud computing. That yeah, was about, that was uh, episode number six hundred and seventy-one. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Six seven one. It was in April twenty twenty-three. Yeah, so about uh, eight, eight or nine months ago, um, and we're talking about the necessity of cloud computing for machine learning and data science moving forward, and for AI as well. And I just wanted to reiterate that that's still the case. Uh, we're still very focused on that. Uh, we're helping a lot of people since that episode, That's because that was when we were launching our platform, CloudWolf. Since then, mm -hmm. uh, over 400 people have signed up, and uh, most of them are data scientists, machine learning engineers. Uh, dozens have received the AWS certification. Um, and so we're very pumped about that. And um, it is still like the case more than ever that uh, cloud is important for machine learning AI. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about LLMs. And why is that? Because um, at initially, like at the start of this year, when ChatGPT came out and things like that, or start of 2023, I didn't think that there'll be a lot of demand for machine learning practitioners and data scientists uh, and AI engineers to, to learn the nuts and bolts of um, transformers, large language models, GPT models, how, like, how they reconstruct. I thought it would be focused on prompt engineering, but <laughs> I was very wrong. Like We've had like, a lot of demand for a large language models course, and uh, also we're seeing a lot of employers out there starting to hire LLM engineers. It's a very hot space. You know, like, it feels to me like, um, remember in 2012, like data science was the new big thing and data science salaries were like through the roof because there was lack of talent. Nobody knew what it meant. Nobody knew, like, like uh, hiring managers didn't know who to hire. Like it feels that all over again, you know, like this had been a 10 year cycle. Now, now the new hot thing is LLMs and all these companies, like the ones that want to be at the cutting edge of technology and implement LLMs inside their uh, operations inside their, I don't know, like um, a business, whatever else, however they're doing their business. Uh, and it's not just tech companies. We're talking about you know, real estate companies, banks, insurance companies, consulting companies, and of course, you know, all the tech companies. And the salaries for LLM engineers are through the roof, like going up to all the way up to 600,000 for uh, LLM manager or 500,000 for LLM engineer. 
what do you reckon? Do you think we're we're at that phase again with like data scientists? Uh, we were like ten years ago. I definitely agree. I think it's a compliment to the data scientist skill set, and I think that because of innovations like LLMs, uh, we have had continued interest and increased interest in data science roles, machine learning engineer roles. It's one of those things where people worry about automation taking jobs, but automation throughout all of history has changed the kinds of jobs that people have. And this is a perfect example where the ecosystem around data science keeps developing and the tools that we have grow. And so even though large language models make data analysis easier, make making models easier, allow us to have all kinds of automations, the demand is greater than ever because of this ecosystem that evolves and because of the kinds of applications that people uh, expect more and more to incorporate these kinds of technologies. And so the only, I guess, kind of bit of nuance that I would add is that I don't think it's that like 10, 12 years ago, data scientist was super popular and that's like waned. Mm. It's just that this particular niche within data science has now exploded as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree with you. And I think uh, there's this, um, uh, the, like, once something new like this happens, or if we learn, I love, uh, uh, what's what's his name? Um, that investor in the US, um, I forgot his name. The, the one who looks at, like, past to predict what's going to be future. It's natural, right? Like, if we look at what happened. <laughs> I, I only trust investors that look into the future. <laughs> uh, no, like, he has a book, Ray Dalio. He has a book recently about, like, economies and so on. Um, like, if we look at what happened with the data science uh, trend, like, the it won't wane. But what will happen, I believe, with LLMs is there will be more... Right, like right now, I look today, there's 1,300 jobs on Glassdoor, open job positions that specifically require LLM skills. Uh, some of them like a preference, but a lot of them is actually, you need to know LLMs. You need to do this. You need to be doing engineering. You need to be doing scaling. You need to be doing data collection, whatever else. Managing an LLM team. 1,300 doesn't sound like a lot. And that's why the salaries are so high. But as uh, time progresses, there'll be more... Um, candidates who know LLMs because people will learn. And also there'll be more companies who will want LLMs. So the demand and the supply will increase and eventually the, the salaries will taper down. That's what I, that's my prediction that, you know, we're not going to be seeing $600,000 salaries for an LLM engineer like one year from now, maybe, okay, two years from now. I think there'll be a more of a better equilibrium in the market for LLM jobs. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure I 100% agree, I guess, because I think it kind of it ends up being like, at the time that data scientists say, there were only 1500 of them. Yeah. There were probably some that were asking half a million dollars or whatever. But there were also, you know, it's probably more normal to be like 200,000 or 100,000. And as time has gone on, the number of data scientists out there has become so large that there's still like, I think the shape of the distribution is probably, I don't know if, it, if, if, if it's about the same, or there's probably, I think there's probably more people who are data scientists making those very large salaries than ever before. Even though 
the demand and supply like would have been would have been more the supply would have been more constrained for sure 10 12 yeah, years ago yeah. but th- there has also been a lot of seniority developed a lot of niches developed and so i still i suspect that in terms of total number there's more people commanding those kinds of like half million dollar or more salaries in data science than ever before um Interesting, interesting. So in absolute terms, maybe you're right. Uh, but if we think in relative terms, like if you have LLM skills right now, you're much more well positioned than if you will have LLM skills two years from now. Like you will be, in, in relative terms, I think you'll be much more competitive. So your business wants an LLM to transform customer service. Well, you could iterate on disconnected platforms, struggle with the lifecycle of open source tools, or you could iterate freely without creating a single ticket. Register for a free 30-minute workshop and watch a RAG retrieval augmented generation powered system be built in record time using Kubeflow, MLflow, and KServe, pre-built notebooks and battle-tested machine learning tools, all in one place as part of HPE Esmeral software and powered by Intel Xeon scalable processors. Head to hpe.com slash slash chat with your data to join this free cutting edge event. We've got the link in the show notes for easy access. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely better to build those skills now. But I think people typically, you know, once you kind of ratchet up to that kind of higher salary, I think it's kind of rare for it to come down. Instead, you'll develop more skills. You'll be even more on the cutting edge. You'll have LLMs plus some kind of specialized LLM skill that comes next. Yeah, you can add yeah. in and you can be like, I've been publishing LLM yeah. papers since 2024. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so you'll be this kind of like senior LLM leader by the time. I Especially if you listen to this podcast, <laughs> John <laughs> talks about LLMs a lot. Like I, I've been following, of course, I've been following. So if you want to be an LLM uh, expert, make sure to subscribe and <laughs> subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to. Um, quite a lot of guests. Uh, come on to talk about LMs. I think. Yeah, I mean, we we try to find the biggest and best guests out there, and we don't typically dictate what guests should be talking about. Uh, but the most interesting guests in the world, you know, you bring in people from Berkeley or Stanford or other top labs, Google DeepMind. They're either directly or indirectly, typically right now, working on LLMs or generative AI in some way, and typically also getting their own startup going that's involved in some kind of generative AI startup as well on the side going. So yeah, it's definitely, there's a huge amount of opportunity here. It's because these, it's such a powerful technology, an an unprecedentedly powerful technology. And so there's an abundance of opportunities for us to be making amazing applications, making a huge difference to people and to businesses. And so, yeah. It's been a, it's been a, certainly it's been the topic of the year, uh, in, in the year past in 2023. Um, For sure. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if we've got a lot of LLM episodes in 2024, but this is a different episode because typically when I have guests on to talk about LLMs, they are going into detail on some specific, uh, technology related to LLMs that they have some particular application. But here today you're going to be doing a survey and you're going to be, yeah, introducing the the whole area to us from the ground up and so yeah so i guess you've been working a ton on an llms course right yeah yeah for sure um it's uh it was funny like it was in uh, september uh this year when we realized okay we got a we've done like quite a big uh march forward with the cloud platform that we're building 
uh, and you know people are quite happy. We've got a lot of content in there. Let's take a break for a month and build this large language models A to Z course in line with our A to Z uh, <laughs> kind of like fr- not franchise. What's it called? Like line of courses that we have: machine learning yeah. A to Z, AI A to Z. We thought, okay, LLM A to Z. Um, take us a month. <laughs> Four months later, <laughs> I'm only finishing up. There's like there's 30 intuition tutorials in there. As usual, I do intuition. Adlan does the practical, and we're doing fine tuning of an LLM to, like he's doing fine tuning of LLM to a uh, medical data set, which is very exciting. I'm doing the theory of transformers from the ground up, GPT models, everything LLMs, and uh, there's like 30 tutorials. I counted yesterday, like 31 tutorials took me four months to put it all together because like I had to scour the whole internet, read research papers. Of course, attention is all you need, research paper, plus all the, a lot of the other ones, um, blogs, videos, you name it, and get all these details. And from like experts in the field, from, I don't know, um, people who are just dabbling in it, um, blogs that were written a while ago, because Transformers were introduced in 2017. So there's a lot of information on out there on them. Um, and yeah, finally, I can with great confidence say that we're finishing up like this this week our plan is to finish it up on 31st December and uh, the course is available it's exclusively available on the super data science platform not available anywhere else not available on Udemy or anywhere else um, so if you want to check it out go to superdatascience.com slash LLM course um, and I can confidently say that in my uh, like from what I've seen uh, I genuinely believe this is the best course on LLMs you can find out there. Um, yeah, so that's that's the course we've been working on. Uh, it's uh, it's available. You you can't buy it separately. You have to become a member at Super Data Science. Uh, but with that, you also get all access to all of our other courses, workshops, which in 2024 we're going to be doing regularly, at least once a month, maybe more often on LLMs and other things, uh, and other perks inside the membership. Nice. So like workshops are like interactive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Workshop interactive. We're already doing them in our cloud platform. Uh, people love them. Uh, so we're going to be doing them in our community on uh, super data science. Yeah, yeah. So and so when you say cloud platform, you mean like your cloud cloud instruction platform, CloudWolf. Yeah, CloudWolf. Yeah. Like, so we have yeah. CloudWolf for people who want to learn cloud and get AWS certified. And we have uh, superdatascience.com for anybody who wants to learn data science and machine learning AI. Um, but Having said that, I'm here not to you know just promote the course. I'm here because I am fresh, like in terms of my knowledge. Like past four months, I've been doing LLMs. We're going to switch over back to uh, creating cloud content uh, in the next few weeks, and I wanted to really um, capture this knowledge inside a podcast and share with people. So my goal is that by the end of this episode, you will understand as a listener, you'll understand the ins and outs of how a transformer model works. We'll be focusing on GPT models, which are uh, decoder-only models. And by the end of this episode, you will understand all of the components that are inside a GPT model slash a transformer model, what LLMs are and how they work on the inside. Like you've heard a lot of podcast episodes on this show, as John mentioned, about people talking about applications of LLMs or research and really cool things. Today is the opportunity to understand how it really all works uh, on a technical level. So I'm very excited, very excited to share the, the insights today. But before we do, before we dive into this, Kirill, is this something that should be scary or intimidating for people? Are LLMs like harder to learn than other kinds of concepts? Uh, that's a great question. Um, 
I would say that LLMs are no not much harder than learning about neural networks. And uh, if you understand concepts such as like backpropagation, um, even even a gradient descent, like even if you don't know them yet, like LLMs are easier than that in my view because it's an architectural solution. Uh, it's a matter of understanding the building blocks that go into an LLM. Uh, and if you already know about our neural networks, it's going to be pretty straightforward. Uh, it's the, the the hard part for me was spending the four months and putting everything together because there's no one source, or there wasn't until we've released this course. I don't believe there's this one source where you could get all of the information coherently in one place with all of the little details covered and nothing left. Like I'll give you an example. Like I thought two days ago. I was like, I thought, okay, I'm done with the course, almost done, just a few tutorials left. I'm just going to revise everything I've learned uh, over the past few months for the preparation for this podcast with John. And then, boom, like literally yesterday, I was sitting there reading another piece of information. I couldn't find any answers. So I was digging somewhere in Stack Exchange on AI, not even in the main thread, like in a chat inside Stack Exchange where some researcher was answering somebody's question and, and like I had an epiphany. And like what, like the one of the biggest breakthroughs that happened to, in my learning of LMs happened literally yesterday because it was so hidden and it's not obvious. It's not in the research paper. Some people who know how these things work, they assume you understand. Some people who don't know, most in the most cases, will probably miss this part. And we'll talk about it later. It's about training of an LLM, how it actually happens in uh, segment within segment nice. parallelization of training. So nice. to answer your question, it's not hard if you have all the information. And I will do my best to present all of it here. Again, if you want to dive deeper, check out the course that uh, Adlan and I are, are releasing. Nice. Yeah. LLMs A to Z available exclusively in the superdatascience.com platform. All right. Let's start with the basics of LLMs, Kirill. Okay. All right. Here we go. <laughs> Super excited. So uh, the ingredients of an LLM, uh, you first of all need a lot of data. You need like tons and tons of data, hence you know large language models. You need a transformer architecture, which is the core of um, you know ChatGPT, uh, Claude by Anthropic. Um, you know, like basically even uh, stable diffusion, right? Like it's an image system, but it actually also has GP uh, transformers in in its core. Uh, you need uh, pre-training. You need a lot of pre-training, and that's where uh, your most of your compute time uh, cost is going to go. That's the most expensive and time-consuming part of uh, the large language model. Then uh, you can also optionally have reinforcement learning with human, fe human feedback, uh, and also optionally you can fine-tune uh, the large language model on domain-specific data, if you like. So those are like the five core ingredients of large language models, and of course, you know, there's other variations, other additions to them. Uh, a brief uh, history of uh, large language models. By the way, this is not uh, uh, mine originally. This is uh, this history overview is something I saw in a lecture on YouTube by Andre Karpathy. We'll link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, but in summary, um, in 2003, Yosho Benjo and some other scientists published a paper called A Neural Probabilistic Language Model. This was one of the first attempts to model a language with a, a neural uh, neural way. Then in 2014, Ilya Sutskever, who currently works at OpenAI, uh, published a paper called Sec to Sec Mo uh, Learning with Neural Networks. The importance of this research paper was that it combined LSTM networks, two LSTM networks, into an encoder-decoder structure. So the LSTM networks were originally uh, invented back in the 90s, I believe, by uh, Hop Hop 
I forgot. It's a German sir, German uh, scientist. Uh, Is it uh, Jürgen Schmidhuber? Uh, Jürgen, Jürgen Schmidhuber. Jürgen Schmidhuber uh, was his was his uh, supervisor. Yeah, this was Hopfganger or Hop, I forgot uh, his name. So he was the student under Jürgen Schmidhuber. So well, the two of them invented. I think it's uh, I think it's Hochreiter. Hochreiter. I so my apologies for mispronounce. So Hochreiter was a student of Schmidt Huber. And by the way, it's really interesting to watch Schmidt Huber's. Uh, I remember back from 2017 watching his YouTube uh, when we were preparing artificial intelligence ages watching some of his talks and um, comments on AI. Maybe it's changed, but back then it was very, very dark. You know, like very, it's got a very dark outlook on the impacts of AI. And and even back then, like all the bells that people are ringing now in terms of the dangers of LLMs and we're not going to go into detail on that, but uh, he was already talking about the dangers of AI back then, and he's got a pretty dark outlook in my perspective. It may have changed, or maybe you know other people have different perspectives. Anyway, so uh, Ilya published this paper, and it was a first paper where uh, two LSTMs were combined into encoder and decoder structure. So basically, uh, you and this was uh, for translation. So you take in the sentence, an LSTM, uh, if you need a refresh, is a type of a recurrent neural network. You take an, uh, a sentence you want to translate, you put it into this neural network one word at a time, and then there's uh, this is the LSTM. Then at the end of this encoder LSTM, you have a vector which tra transfers all of that information to the decoder, which is another LSTM, and then the, the decoder now unravels it and puts the, makes the translation. That was the design, and I remember we were playing around with this in uh, 2017 for our Artificial Intelligence Ages at course, and the big problem with that architecture, even though it was already showing some promise, the big problem, two big problems with that architecture. First one is it has to take in uh, the information sequentially. So it's very hard to parallelize and you can't scale it easily for training. Second thing is that because you have this one vector, word vector or context text vector, whatever you want to call it, between the encoder and decoder, like there's one vector that connects the two. You're trying to squish all of this information into one vector and then pass it on to the next one. And so the longer your input, the harder it will be. Effectively, you're creating a bottleneck. And uh, that's why LSTMs, you know, they have a lot of merit, very uh, eloquent solution to some of the problems there uh, with like the vanishing gradient and so on. Uh, but at the same time, they didn't go that far, be mostly because of these two, two issues. Um, and yeah, so that was in 2014. And again, in 2014, just uh, around the same time, there's a, um, another paper by Dmitry Bardano, who published a paper called Neural Machine Translation by Jointly Learning to Align and Translate. And he introduced a concept on top of this architecture that uh, with the LSTMs, he introduced a concept of attention. Well, actually, he didn't call it attention. He was going to call it something else. But Yoshio Benjo was one of the co-authors on the paper as well. And he, he uh, suggested the word attention. And so the way that um, this paper works is basically it's like, okay, let's use this LSTM architecture, recurrent neural nets for language modeling. But in addition to, uh, in order to solve the bottleneck problem, we're going to now give this extra mechanism of attending towards, so allowing the uh, neural network to remember certain characteristics, certain information about different words and store it separately so that it can then be um, can used in the translation part or in the output part. And this was uh, a really cool um, solution or really cool uh, way to address the bottleneck problem. 
so the way to think about it, and the way um, Dmitry Bazdano explains this in an email reply to Andrei Karpaty. So Andrei Karpaty, when he saw that, he actually asked Dmitry Bazdano how he came up with this idea. And he replied, and, it, and this is public on one of the YouTube videos by Andrei. Um, the way he explained it is like Dmitry, Dmitry's uh, first language isn't English. So he had to learn English. So imagine when you're learning to translate uh, from English or from your language to English or the other way around. As a human, you like you you're writing out this translated text. Let's say you have your language, like a paragraph, and you're writing out this paragraph in English. So you're writing it out, and like let's say you're on the seventh word. Now you to for the eighth word, you don't just have it all in your head. You don't have the context, the whole meaning of your initial paragraph in your head. You look back. You like you look back and you look at different words. You like combine them again, re revisit them, and then you translate the eighth word. And then you for the ninth word again, it's not all in your head. So think about it as like for machines. Like we were thinking, oh, let's have in the in the LSTM paper by Ilya Sutskever, everything is in this one vector. It's like having the whole paragraph you want to translate just in your head and trying to translate. Whereas the addition of attention is like in a human version where you're um, looking back throughout while you're translating, you're looking back at the original text to help you translate each sequential word. Empower your business with Profits of AI, the leading agency for AI and robotics experts. Whether you seek a captivating keynote speaker, a company workshop host, or even guidance in implementing AI seamlessly into your organization, Profits of AI connects you directly with the luminaries shaping the future of AI, such as Ben Gertzel and Nell Watson, both of whom have been phenomenal guests on this very podcast. Whether you are a large global enterprise or just beginning your AI journey, Profits of AI have a solution for you. Their speakers have graced the most prestigious stages around the world, and now you can head to ProfitsofAI.com yourself to see their full roster or to the show notes where we've got their contact link. Makes perfect sense. It, it would bridge conceptually this kind of gap in capabilities between pre-attention, it would be a relatively easy task if it happened to be the case that you could kind of like one-to-one -one map from one language to another word by word yeah where you could just be like you know the dog runs and then you translate that into some other language some target language french yeah. russian or whatever uh chinese and somehow it ends up being that it's still just the dog runs exactly yeah. three words in exactly that order then probably without attention translation would be easy but attention as you're saying it allows you to consider more than just this linear sequence you are considering all of the context um, potentially not just before a given next word, but also context after it in order to pick the seventh word, the eighth word, the ninth word appropriately. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, yeah, different languages have different, um, styles and they like different rules and it's, it's, it's much more complex than just translating word by word. And interesting point is that we're talking about translation here is because it's, it's the most, um, obvious problem for like uh, like dummy or practice or training problem or uh, challenge to solve with a machine you know solution like chat gpt doesn't it's not the design is not for translation right it's for prompt engineering or prompts and answers and text generation right but like originally the way this field evolved is all these papers they're focused on translating because that's kind of like the obvious challenge or obvious uh, problem you can solve and speaking of 
this, the next paper, the one, the final one that we're going to mention today, is the was which was published in 2017 by a whole team at Google. I believe it was eight researchers at Google. Is called "Attention is All You Need," and again, it was focused on translation, uh, and that's the paper that introduced transformers. So, a cool trivia, a piece of trivia, is that transformers were originally designed as a translation mechanism because of all this history, but later, only now, well, afterwards, they were adapted to like BERT models, GPT models, and you know, for GPT models for text generation. And so what's very interesting and phenomenal about this paper, attention is all you need, it's like it's in the name. The What they did is they took this LSTM uh, structure, decoder, uh, encoder, decoder, plus the attention that was introduced by Dmitri. And then they're like, okay, let's throw out the LSTM. <laughs> let's just keep the attention part. Why do we even need this? So the, the Dmitri's paper in 2014 solved the bottleneck problem or addressed the bottleneck problem. But then they still had that sequential processing problem, you know, that it wasn't easy to parallelize. But when you throw out the LSTM and now you only have the attention part, now you don't have a bottleneck problem and you don't have the step-by-step -step sequential input or, uh, processing and generation problem. And all of a sudden you open a whole world of possibilities uh, as long as you can pull it off, as long as you can uh, create an architecture that works based on just attention. That's exactly what this team at Google did. And this was back in 2017. As you can see, you, you correctly mentioned, John, like uh, Transformers have been around for a while, but it took five years for it to really break through in the form of ChatGPT and uh, gain uh, popularization. And now, now it's all over the place. So um, yeah, so that's, that's where we're at. And that's the paper we're going to be going through today. It's going to be a very interesting uh, challenge because, you know, like, uh, it's an interesting challenge for me to put together like an explanation of how a transformer works without any visual aid. If you are in front of your computer, feel free to open up this paper. It's called Attention is All You Need. You can download an archive and open up the diagram of the transformer. You can follow along. You'll notice that I'm simplifying things and you know leaving out a few items that are not important, but we'll talk about the most important things. If you're not in front of a computer, no worries. Uh, whether you're driving, running, cycling, whatever, relaxing on the couch, Uh, like I've, I believe I've come up with a method that will help you visualize mm -hmm. it in your mind. <laughs> Just be careful if you're driving. <laughs> of course, don't get too carried away, please. Nice. And I think a key thing here to mention is you already touched on it there a little bit, but I'll dig into it in more detail, is that even though this key paper, Attention is All You Need, from that team at Google is from 2017, the concepts underlying large language models today in terms of neural network architectures are the same. So, so seven years later, it's just been a matter of scaling up in terms of sizes of the training data available for training these LLMs. And then how many of the attention, these things called attention heads, which I'm sure, I'm sure you'll get into later, but the number of attention heads in the LLM gets bigger and bigger. Um, and also context windows have been getting bigger. So it's basically just size. It's just a matter of scaling up. But fundamentally, the neural network architecture is the same. It's just bigger. And Absolutely. So that's why it makes sense to dig into in so much detail this one particular paper. From Absolutely. In addition to what you said as well, it, the I was watching a video by Andrew Karpathy, and uh, he pointed out that not just the architecture is the same, but even a lot of the like the para the the parameters or hyperparameters are like the the ones they picked in the paper they haven't been any super major breakthroughs or super major changes like um i don't know the number 
of uh, like the embedding size of the vectors or um, how they how they do not batch normalization but layer normalization. Something we won't be talking about is like an additional step um, or these uh, residual connections. Is like only a very few improvements have happened over the past seven years. Most of the stuff that like is uh, we're using these days, of course. To, to what we know, there's a lot of proprietary things with open AI, as Elon Musk called it, becoming the super closed AI for profit, for profit organization. Um, like we don't know exactly how they struck it, but most of the things that were proposed in this paper still work to this day. I haven't been um, outperformed by any, like, any significant modifications that have happened since. All right, so let's get into your visual of Transformers from the Attention is All You Need paper. And by the way, we will have links to all these papers that were mentioned in the show notes. For sure, so for sure. There for yeah. one place. If you're driving, don't visualize too hard. Keep an eye. <laughs> yeah, and if you find, I wanted to say, um, if you find parts of this like too complex, like especially when we're talking about that tension mechanism, it can be become a little bit technical. Feel free to skip through like, um, you know, a few minutes and get to the rest because um, later on, after the technical stuff, there'll be more very important non-technical aspects as well. And in addition to that caveat, I wanted to mention a few other ones before we dive into the, like the, the components of a transformer. The um, first one is a transformer has two, two parts to it. It has an encoder and a decoder. Uh, we're going to be talking about just a decoder. Why is that? Because a GPT model with like ChatGPT, for example, is a decoder-only model. This is a good piece of trivia. Not many, it's not, it's not obvious when you think about it. Like, yes, ChatGPT uses a transformer, but it doesn't use the full transformer. You throw out the encoder part, you only use the decoder. Whereas another piece of trivia, if you look at a BERT model, you only use the encoder part, you throw out the decoder part. So, but we're going to be looking at just the decoder part of a transformer. Another uh, caveat, GPT can... stands for... Yeah, go ahead. If you don't mind, Kirill, I'll quickly also, I'll add to give some a bit of context on why you would use just an encoder or use just a decoder. Yeah. Um, so a decoder-only model like the GPT series, it is designed primarily to be generating text. So it's this generation, which is the decoding part, so it's kind of easy to remember, um, you know, that decoder part of the transformer. When would you use it? It's when you want a model that is optimized for outputting, generating like a generative AI model, like a chatbot, uh, ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. So these GPT sure. series architectures, decoder only. The inverse, encoder only, ends up being really helpful when you're not doing a generative task. So when you want to use the information in some other way, so maybe you're building like a classifier or some other kind of machine learning model, um, maybe like a ranking algorithm, like you're gonna convert all of your documents into some abstract space, You'll use the encoder part of the transformer to do that encoding. And so you don't need the decoder. You're just concerned about encoding in those cases. Um, and yeah, BERT is definitely the most famous um, example of a BERT-like <laughs> from uh, Sesame Street. Uh, there's yes. lots of, in some of the early, you didn't uh, talk about these particular papers, but there were, there were a bunch of early um, attention and transformer related papers where there was like elmo and then there was Bird. Oh, yes yes and so yeah there was that was a bit of a funny trend um now some years ago um yeah. anyway sorry i interrupted you uh sure so yeah encoder decoder and then you're on to the next thing yeah the next thing was um uh another in just so we're on the same page another piece of trivia gpt stands for 
generative pre-trained transformer. Hence, you know, that transformer because it's used in GPT models. Uh, and one final thing I wanted to note is that even though uh, basically in, in our course that we released, we cover everything from encoder to decoder, er, all the steps, everything complete. But for simplicity's sake and to keep things concise, in this podcast, we'll focus on the decoder only and also because that's that's what's relevant to GPT models. All right, cool. So let's get started into it. I'm super pumped about this. So um, the attention uh, is all you need. Paper has a diagram. Obviously, uh, we're going to have to visualize this. The best way, uh, we're going to simplify some things. The best way to think about it is imagine five boxes, five uh, boxes stacked on top of each other, um, all a blank, right? We're going to be filling them in. And they're connected from the bottom box uh, to the next box up with an arrow, and then to the next box up with an arrow, and so on. So basically, that's the architecture of the um, transformer. Uh, it starts from the bottom and goes up through these boxes. And we're going to now fill it, in these blanks. It's like a five-story apartment building. You start yeah. on the ground floor, and then you move to the second floor, and then to the third floor, all the way up. Yeah, if, if you're, in case you're a five-year-old listening to this, John has, has got you covered <laughs> with his five-story analogy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure our audience can <laughs> visualize five boxes. <laughs> but thanks, thanks. That's a good addition. <laughs> all right, so um, yes, five stories, uh, starting with the first floor. Or well, how do you do it in Canada? In Australia, it's uh, for ground floor and then it's first floor. As we often discuss on air with guests, deep learning is the specific technique behind nearly all of the latest AI and machine learning capabilities. If you've been eager to learn exactly how deep learning works, my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, is the perfect place to start. Physical copies of Deep Learning Illustrated are available in seven languages, but you can also access it digitally via the O'Reilly Learning Platform. Within O'Reilly, you'll find not only my book, but also more than 18 hours of corresponding video tutorials if video's your preferred mode of learning. If you don't already have access to O'Reilly via your employer or school, you can use our code SDSPOD23 to get a free 30-day trial. That's SDSPOD23. We've got a link in the show notes. So Canada and the U.S., uh, there's no like floor zero. Mm. So the the first floor is the ground floor. But yeah, oh, okay. in Europe, because um, in Australia, what side of the road do you guys drive on in Australia? On the U.K. side of the road, on the left. On the U.K. side. So you drive on the left side of the road and you have a floor zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> floor G, yeah. All right. We'll for simplicity's sake, we'll use the US method. So it, the the yeah. It really makes uh, all <laughs> before we go into that, it makes a lot of sense to have a floor zero. I know we're gonna go with floor one because yeah. it, it does definitely make a lot of sense. But it in terms of just num like n the way that numbers work, yeah. You shouldn't just go from one to negative one, you've skipped an integer. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good uh, point. Yeah, it makes yeah. a lot of sense. Anyway. Yeah, uh, but in, uh, you know, in, in some countries, like, due to, I believe, like, beliefs or superstitions, they they omit certain floors or they use floors. For example, in uh, in China, the number eight is uh, very popular. So I was in one building uh, where, like, I looked at the elevator buttons and it was like, I don't remember, like, of eighth floor because my friends were staying, they lived on, like, the 19th or 18th floor or something. So it goes, like, 16, 17, 18A, 18B, 18C, 18D, 18E, 19, 20. Uh, 
yeah. I wonder if they skipped 13 in China. They skipped 13 in my building in New York, my residential yeah. building, because they'd have to charge less rent. Or but, or when you when you sell it, right? When as a developer, yeah. when you're selling it, you're gonna have yeah. to convince buyers or sell it for less. Yeah, but beware all you 14 people. You're, <laughs> you're, 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 very unlucky floor. You just don't know. Well, it might be twelve people if you add the ground floor. At the <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. All right. Anyway. So anyway, so we're gonna go with the American system for this analogy. So okay, yeah. we're on level one, which is also level confusing, one, like, perhaps for our European and Australian listeners. <laughs> level one. <laughs> so uh, let's imagine you have. Uh, so level one is called input embedding. So you have a whole. Uh, sentence uh, or vector or so of words you want to give them to a machine, a transformer. Obviously, machines can't really work with um, number uh, with uh, words. They need to work with numbers. So we want to convert each one of these words. Well, when I say words, um, on this, if you've been listening to this podcast, you've heard John many times talk about tokens, and that's what um, LLMs work with tokens. They're not necessarily full words. They're maybe half words, uh, you know, like parts of words, and uh, but for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to be using tokens and words interchangeably. So you have this series of really quickly for a great intro episode for people who want to dig into those subwords. Uh, specifically, episode number six hundred and twenty-six is all about subword tokenization. Um, but yeah, fantastic. Yeah, check check that one out. It's uh, it's quite an important topic. So we're going to be uh, talking about words and uh, subwords and tokens, all the same. Because uh, that's not the that's not the focus of this episode. So you have these words. Now, for each word, you're going to need to create a vector, and not just a random vector, but a context-rich vector. And I'll give you an example. So, uh, John, let's do a quick riddle. Imagine this equation. If you take king, the concept yeah. of the word king, you know this one, right? Yeah. You subtract the concept of the word man, and you add the concept of the word woman, right? Like what? Is your answer king minus man plus woman? What are you going to get? Mm -hmm. uh, let me puzzle on this for a moment. Maybe uh, is it princess? Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm in the right neighborhood. <laughs> uh, no, it's not princess. <laughs> it's Elizabeth. Uh, almost. It's a queen. <laughs> it's a queen. So basically, um, if you think about it, like if you um, take the characteristics that uh, or the features of the essence of the word king, like every word in the English language has an essence, which can be described with certain features. You know, like for example, a king is wealthy, right? Like generally kings on average are pretty wealthy. Um, a king um, is pretty authoritative, right? They have they can dictate to people what they do in their kingdom. And so they, they are in charge of the kingdom. <laughs> yes, like they, they, um, they, are royal, right? But they're not just royal. They're also, they are in charge of the kingdom. Like a prince is royal, but a king is royal and is uh, in charge. He has authority of the, over the kingdom. Um, and, and things like that. So you can describe words with different features. And if you take the essence of the word king and you subtract the essence of the word man and you add the essence of the word woman, naturally, intuitively, you get the word queen, even though we're doing arithmetic with words and not numbers. And this kind of like hints towards the fact that you can actually describe a word with lots of different features and then do arithmetic using those features. And so in the sense of transformers, what we use are vectors, embedding ve they're called embedding vectors, and they have 512 dimensions. So quite a lot of 
uh, features, 512 to be precise. Are, that, and that's specific to this attention is all you need paper. That number of dimensions is arbitrary. It could be. Yes, you can change it. Make it 256, yeah, yeah. make it 10 million if you want, but it'll, it'll obviously impact. Um, yeah. Compute efficiency versus. So the more dimensions you add, the more numbers you need to represent the location of a word in this embedding space. So if you have 512 dimensions versus 256, it's twice as much information you need. However, that could be worth it. It could make more nuance. And so, as you say, as you as you increase the number of dimensions towards infinity, the improvement in quality of your embeddings for whatever downstream application you have doesn't get better at some point. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. you need to you know, decide, all right, it's let's just cut it off here at 512. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're not going to go into detail on how this is done because there's solutions on this. You can look up bag of words model. You can look up the n-gram model. You can look up, you can, for example, look, you could just use already an existing embedding uh, for all the, the words. Uh, like There's ways of doing it. Just the main takeaway from this is that the vectors that are created in this first box, uh, the vector embedding of the words, they're not just random vectors. They are vectors that capture the semantic meaning of the word. We'll be talking about, because this is you know language, we'll be talking about different types of meaning. And they capture semantics. Semantic meaning is the dictionary meaning. So if you open up the dictionary, it'll describe what an orange is, what an apple is, what a horse is, what an ocean is. And these vectors capture them. So in your vector space, uh, what you'll have is not just a random series of vectors. That's, you know, that's pretty easy to create, just a random series of vectors, unique vectors for, for words. But you'll actually have... Uh, uh, vectors for every single word in the English language, which you know can range between two, between fifty thousand words to six hundred thousand or a million words, depends on how you look. But like let's say two hundred thousand words in the English uh, vocabulary. So for each one, you'll have a unique vector, but not just a random one. They will be capturing semantic meaning, and that implies that vectors that words that are similar will be close to each other. So like an apple will be close to an orange, close to a banana. Whereas, um, I don't know, like, like a, a car will be somewhere else in this vector space in a different location because they're not that similar. Like the adjective good and great and excellent will be close to each other. The adjectives bad and terrible will be close to each other. So you just imagine this multi-dimensional 512 dimensional vector space, which is impossible to imagine. Uh, but in this uh, space, uh, similar vectors, uh, similar word, uh, vectors representing similar words are going to be similar to each other. So that's box one, right? We've converted our text into every single word of our input now has its own semantic meaning uh, or embedded vector which captures semantic meaning. Good, moving on to box two. Okay. So box two is called positional encoding. Uh, why is positional encoding important? What is it? Let's look at this example. Um, Horses eat apples, right? It's a valid, grammatically valid English sentence. It makes total sense, means something. Um, now let's take the same words and rearrange them. Apples eat horses. It's a grammatically correct English sentence. It's, um, every, it follows all the rules. It has exactly the same words, but it means something completely different, right? And in fact, it's nonsensical. Apples don't eat horses. So 
that just illustrates that you, word you order. Just, you just haven't done enough LSD. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah. In some some weird dreams. Yeah, maybe. carry on, carry on. Carry on. <laughs> uh, yes, or for some people it might make a lot of sense. Anyways, but the point is that um, word order in a language is important and it can significantly affect meaning. Um, when we were talking about when the the state of the art for language processing were recurrent neural networks and LSTMs. That wasn't a problem because they inherently preserve word order. They take the words in sequentially. Whereas transformers have a major breakthrough in the sense that they take the input in parallel, so they're much faster. But at the same time, that creates the disadvantage that they don't inherently preserve word order. And so, therefore, in order to correctly convey the meaning of a sentence into a transformer model, you have to have positional encoding. Again, this is one of those things that we're not going to dive into. Uh, there's many ways of achieving positional encoding. Uh, the one they use in the Attention's All You Need paper is very elegant. Uh, it uses cosine and sine functions. Uh, it's uh, deterministic for uh, each uh, position in the, in the input sentence. Um, but in a nutshell, what happens is to each one of these vectors that we have for our words, so like we have a word, let's say it has a sentence, it has or the input, let's say it has 50 words, so it means there's 50 positions. To each one of the vectors that we've created, the embedding vectors, we add a, a small number which represents the position of um, that word in the sentence, right? Or not, so not, not, not a small number, like a small vector. We add to each one of those vectors, we add another small vector which represents the position of that word in the sentence. And that is a mechanic. So we're just creating the environment for the transformer during training to leverage this, right? So we're our, our job is to encode the positions into these vectors. The transformer will learn how to use that mechanism that we're um, giving, giving to it through this uh, approach. So that's what box number two is, positional encoding. All good, John? Anything to add? Nice. Yeah, I'm keeping track here. So floor one, input embeddings, uh, where we're getting each of our uh, words put into a vector space, a location in the vector space. And then when we go up to the second floor, the floor you just finished describing, you've got the positional encodings. And then, yeah, now we're going to go up to floor three. All right. Full floor three is the middle <laughs> and is the most important part. This is the attention mechanism. And that is the the heart of the transformer that's like what's most revolutionary about this model and that really enables a lot of uh what we're seeing a lot of this text generation like if you think back to lstms and when uh, they were generating text like it a lot of the time was nonsensical there was no um, like uh, coherency to it cohesion um <laughs> I always get confused between the two um whereas transformers it's pretty like a lot of the time indistinguishable from human te uh, text and uh, the main reason for this is this attention mechanism. So we're going to talk about the attention me mechanism and before we do, I'll give another example. So let's think about this sentence. The dog did not cross the street because it was too tired, right? You know this one, John? No, actually. Okay, so the dog did not cross the street because it was too tired. Which uh, word, what does the word it mean? Which noun does it refer to in this sentence? Right, right, right. Uh, the dog, of course. The dog, obviously, because the dog, it was too tired. 
But now let's change one little thing, one word about the sentence at the very end. The dog did not cross the street because it was too wide. Which mm. word does the word it mean now? What does the word it nice. mean? Nice. Now it's the street. That was a great it's example. It's the street. Right. Nice. right. This is actually from one of the uh, TensorFlow or Google libraries uh, visualizing transformers. And they use, I think, the animal did not cross the street because it was too wide. Too tired or too wide. So by changing one word at the very end of the sentence, all after those nouns, after the word in question, the word it, by changing one word, we can change the meaning of a preceding word, of the word it in this case. So in one case, it means dog. In one case, when it's too tired. In one case, it means street, when it's too wide. And that shows us that there's not just semantic meaning behind words. There's also contextual meaning. There's lots of types of meaning. You know, there can be sarcastic meaning. There can be emotional meaning. There's lots of different meanings in linguistics. But the two main ones that we're focusing about here is uh, semantic meaning. We already have that in our vector embeddings. But now there's a new kind of meaning that we don't have captured in our vectors, and that is contextual meaning. And that depends on the words around the word. It depends on the whole sentence or the whole paragraph or the whole text that we're processing. Um, so contextual meaning is also important, and it can alter the meaning of the word that we're looking at. And so the, the goal of that tension mechanism is to capture, to create new vectors. So we have vectors that embed semantic meaning, that then have positional coding. Now we want to enhance them even further and create vectors that can contain contextual meaning. And that's what the attention mechanism addresses. I'm going to go through um, how the attention mechanism works. It's going to be a bit more technical than everything else we've had so far in the podcast. It will be the most technical part of this podcast, uh, of this episode. I'll do my best to simplify it as, as much as I can. But if you find it a bit too technical, maybe skip it, skip forward a bit and come back to it when you're in front of a computer and you can open up uh, the attention you need research paper. Or, you know, again, you can always come to our course where we dive into these things over 30 tutorials. But let's do our best to dive into it. We're going to be talking about performing operations with vectors. And there's three ways to think about it. The most mathematically correct way is to think about them as linear matrix operations. Right? So you have a vector, you apply a, ma a linear matrix uh, operation to it, uh, and then you get uh, a resulting vector. So when we say we want to create uh, a vector from this vector, that means we're just applying a matrix operation. Uh, second way to think about it is neural, um, neural, like neural network uh, mentality or approach. Is You think of a vector as an, as an input layer into a fully or an input um, series of nodes, let's say 512 nodes, and that's the input to a fully connected layer. And the output is, you know, if you want a 512-dimensional vector, there's 512 nodes. You want a bigger or smaller vector, less more nodes. And basically, each one, so both layers are fully interconnected, and there is no activation function. That's basically a how we modify or make create a new vector from an old vector. If you think about it from a neural networks perspective. And the final way is the most simplistic way to think about it is if you're not um, very good with matrix operations, if you're not good with neural networks, you just want to visualize it somehow. It's like a matrix, a, a vector has 512 uh, features. So you want to create a new vector also, let's say, with 512 features. Well, the first feature of the new vector will be a weighted sum of the, all of the features of the original vector. The second uh, feature of the new vector will be a weighted sum of all of the features of the original vector and so on. So it's always a weighted sum. The weights are obviously random and different and they are adjusted through training through a process called uh, backpropagation and the 
neural network will learn or transformer will learn how to improve those weights, whether you're thinking about as a matrix operation, a fully connected layer, or the simplistic approach, uh, these weights will be adjusted so that the transformer can perform the task we wanted to perform in the most correct way, in the desired way. Okay, so that's a caveat about uh, uh, vectors. And so let's dive into this uh, tension mechanism. The way it works is uh, we have these vectors. Um, so let's say we're looking, we're going to look at a, sen uh, a sentence Apples are a type of delicious blank, right? So we want to predict the next word. So we have six words. Apples are a type of delicious, and we want to predict the seventh word, which <laughs> it's probably going to be fruit, right? But it's a blank at the moment. Uh, we want to predict what that is. And in order to do that prediction, we're going to enrich our vectors with context contextual meaning. So we're going to look as an example. This is done. This, uh, this process that I'm going to describe is done for each one of the words, each one of the six words that we have. Uh, the tension mechanism is going to be applied. But we're going to look at just one word just to keep it simple and we're just going to pick one word as an example uh, and then just assume that the same thing happens for the rest of the words. So for each one of these words, we uh, from the original vectors that we had, uh, well, the vectors with the embedded vectors with the positional coding, we're going to create three new vectors for each word. There's going to be a Q vector called the query vector, a K vector called the key vector, and a V vector called the value vector. So Q, K, and V. So we'll have a Q, K, V vector for the word apples, Q, K, V vector for the word R, and so on, the Q, K, V vector for the word delicious. Now, the Q vector, uh, and they're all created whichever way you want to think about it, whether it's a matrix operation with a neural network, simple way that we just described, there's three ways. Like one, think, pick one of those and just think of it. That, that's how they create. So there's basically a matrix of weights for creating Q vectors in this attention mechanism. There's a matrix of weights for creating Q vectors, a matrix of weights for creating uh, the K vectors, and a matrix of weights for creating the V vectors, three separate matrices that all need to be learned through training. Now, the Q vector is a vector which is saying what this word wants to uh, what this word is interested in. So the word delicious has its Q vector. And the Q vector of the word delicious is, in, in, is like is a manifestation of what this word delicious wants to attend to. When this mechanism, uh, attention mechanism is, is uh, trained and it's up and running, the word delicious will be looking through the rest of the words in the sentence and it'll be using its Q vector to communicate. I want to, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for this concept. Do you have this concept? Mm -hmm. Do you have this concept? Do you have this concept? So on floor one, <clears throat> when we had the word delicious, yeah, that word, the word delicious, delicious just has a location in our vector space. Yes, and that that word delicious is the same no matter what. Like its mm -hmm. its meaning is is the same. It's root to that. But by the time we get to floor three here, and we have this attention mechanism, these these Q, K, and V vectors, that word delicious that you're referring to. You're not referring to that in the abstract. You're talking about this a specific occurrence of delicious in a specific sentence. In a yes. specific yeah. And so good point. Yes. In so it has sentence. like way more. Yeah, these Q, K, and V vectors reflect all of the extra context that that deliciousness has. So going back to the it thing that you were saying, these K, Q, and V vectors would allow us to be able to determine that it is referring to the dog or it is referring to the road. Whereas exactly. in level That's, one, it is just yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. So the Q vector for in that example, the Q vector for vector for the, the word it 
is going to be signaling or explaining to the rest, uh, is going to contain information about what that word it is looking for, right? So in one case, it'll be looking for uh, an, an animal or like a, a living noun or like an actor. Uh, in another case, we'll be looking something, an obstacle, a street or something like that. Like it's really, it, it's obviously not going to be um, humanly intelligible because this is all going to be trained through backpropagation and lots and lots of uh, iterations in many epochs. But like you can think about it that way. There's something like each word needs needs some information about the context of the sentence that we're specifically talking about in order to be to then become context enriched. And in our example, apples are a type of delicious blank. The word delicious is looking for certain things. And what it's looking for is going to be, we want the transformer to put that into the Q vector. So that's the Q vector for delicious. Next, every word, as we discussed, every word will have the K vectors. Now we're going to talk uh, the QK and all three vectors. Now the K vector, right? So the K vector is like an indexing mechanism. It tells us what the vector contains. So the V vector will have the value, so the thing of interest. So each word will have something of interest that it can give to other words for their context, and that is stored in the vector V. Whereas the K vector is going to be communicating what is stored in this V vector. So um, each word will have a K vector, like the word apples will have a K vector. Uh, the word R will have a K vector. A will have a K vector. Type will have a K. Oh, each one of them will have its own K vector. Uh, and now what's going to happen is we're going to compare. Remember, we're doing this attention. We're doing this for the word delicious. So the Q vector of the word delicious is going to be compared and I'll explain what that means in a second, it'll be compared to each one of the K vectors of all of the words in the sentence, including itself. So the Q vector for delicious, so I, let's say I'm the word delicious, I'm looking for certain information. And that what I'm looking for is described in the Q vector. Now I'm going to go take that Q vector, or transform is going to take that Q vector, and it's going to compare it to the K vector of the word apples. If those vectors are aligned, that means apples has what I'm looking for, and I need to take the V value from apples and include it in my context. If those vectors are not aligned, then apples is completely irrelevant to what I'm looking for, and I should disregard whatever apples has in the word in the V vector. Then I'm going to go to the next word, R. You know, R is a plural verb. Maybe it has some meaning that's relevant that to the word Q to the word delicious that it's looking for. So the Q vector for the word delicious is going to be compared to the word uh, to the k vector for the word r if they are aligned then yes that the value inside the v vector of the word r is um, important for the context of the word delicious and should be taken into account if they're not aligned it should be disregarded that value is not important to the context and that keeps that process keeps happening including with itself so the q vector for delicious will be compared to the k vector for delicious if they are aligned that means whatever value is inside the V vector for delicious is important to the context of the word delicious. If they're not aligned, that means it's uh, it's not important; it should be disregarded. So that's how Q, K, and V work. We'll talk about the mathematics of how this this actually is implemented just now. But I just wanted to check, uh, like, how did how did that sound, John? Yeah, pretty good. For I think it's about as well as you could without visuals, like you say. It's uh, it's kind of. It's a little bit tricky to keep all these things straight, but I mean, fundamentally, for any given term, any given word, 
in a sentence. So like your sentence, apples are a type of delicious blank. Um, yeah, in each at each of those words, we've got the Q vector, the K vector, the V vector. Um, and together, that information allows us to map positions and context together to, um, to yeah, to effectively attend to these words and, and, and understand them in context and allow us to predict what a good final word is at the end of the sentence, apples are a type of delicious blank. Yep, yeah, exactly. And so that is achieved, uh, the word of interest, in our case, delicious, you take the Q vector, and then for each other word in the sentence, including itself, you look at the K vectors and the V vectors. So you compare Q and K, and if they are aligned, then you take the V vector as part of your context. If they're not aligned, you don't. So how is this achieved mathematically? Well, uh, the Q, it's quite an elegant, straightforward solution. You take the dot product of the Q vector for the word delicious and, and the K vector of whatever other word you're looking at. So let's say delicious and apples, right? So you take the Q vector of delicious, you take the K vector of apples, and you calculate the dot product. In case you need a refresher, dot product is basically the multiplication. You, multi you take the absolute value of each one of these vectors, you multiply those two absolute values, and then you multiply it by the cosine between those two vectors. If two vectors are perpendicular, then uh, their cosine is going to be zero, and so their dot product is going to be zero. And uh, if they are aligned, if they're pointing in somewhat the same direction, then their dot product is going to be non-zero. And the more they're aligned, the more they're pointing in the same direction, the more, the higher their dot product will be. So that kind of reflects the, the logic that we just described of how we want, um, uh, you know, the alignment of vectors. And the interesting thing is that we're operating in a 512-dimensional space. And in a 512-dimensional space, two vectors are always going to be perpendicular unless they share a projection into at least one of the dimensions. But because there's so many dimensions, the chances are that most vectors are going to be perpendicular. And so that allows our transformer, that gives our transformer a lot of room for maneuvering to keep a lot of vectors as zero during, like, during as a result of the training. A lot of the dot products are going to be zero, except for the ones that really matter. So in the case of delicious, you know, we want in the in the for the word delicious, we want as much context as possible because we're going to be predicting the next word. So obviously we need something from the word apples because you know if we had I don't know like cucumbers instead of apples, then it would be cucumbers are a type of delicious vegetable, not fruit. So obviously we need context about apples in there. So that vector, that dot product has to be non-zero, and the transformer will have to learn that over training to set up the matrices. Remember we talked about the Q matrix, the V, the K matrix, and the V matrix? It will have to learn to set up those matrices in such a way that in this particular sentence, the dot product of the Q vector for delicious and the K vector for apples is going to be non-zero so that then we can extract the context from the word apples for the word delicious. So the dot products are going to be calculated in, in, the, in that way for each one of these combinations, the Q of delicious and then the K of each one of those words. So and as a result, we're going to have six different dot products. Some of them are going to be very low, close to zero or zero. Some of them are going to be high. For example, like in the case of apples, it should be quite high. Um, now we have these dot products. What are we going to do next? We're going to put them through a softmax function. Uh, just as a quick refresher, softmax effectively takes the exponent of a value and then divides by the sum of the exponents of all of these six values in this case. So basically, it will give us a probability distribution. 
And we'll have these six elements in this probability distribution. So for example, in the case of apples, it might be like 80% are um, like maybe 5% A type of maybe like 0%, whatever. Uh, so we get these probability distribution, uh, these and we'll use them as weights. And we'll use them as weights for the V vectors of the associated words. So for example, in the case of apples, if the dot product of apples and delicious vectors and then the softmax after it's applied, if the if that results in like 80% or like a 0.8, then we're going to take that as the weight of the vector V uh, for Apple. So basically, we're going to take a, a weighted sum of the V vectors, and the weighting is going to be the, the softmax of the dot products of the Q uh, for the word in question, delicious, and the K of each vector. So those will be our weights, what we get from the softmax, and we're going to be taking a weighted sum of the V vectors. Because the V vectors, as we discussed, they contain what that word is bringing to the table, like what that word is offering to other words as context, right? So, so in the case of delicious, we want the context from apples. We don't care about the context from A, R, A, of. We care about the context from type. And all of that will come as a result of, basically, it will be, um, it will be, evident in the transformer after the training, after lots and lots of training, which we'll talk about later on, we'll talk about training. After lots and lots of training, we'll get a result where this uh, contextual vector that we're creating as a weighted sum for the word delicious, it will have the right context from the right words that matter in this sentence. Um, and yeah, and that's a, a weighted sum of these V vectors. As you can see, it's a, it's a very elegant solution, very elegant mathematical solution to the logical problem that we had at the start. Got a bit of a dumb question here, Carol, but so everything that you're describing here, these Q, K, and V vectors, they are helpful for allowing us to attend to the words that we already have yeah. um, in our sentence. And, and in particular, for these kinds of um, generative decoder-only approaches, I, I think it's always the case that we're only looking back because we're trying to predict what the next token it's a yep. so-called auto-regressive model where we're predicting the next yep. token, predicting the next word, which will mean that we're only ever looking back. So the, we have these vectors, these these Q, K, and V vectors for you know some number of words looking back, whatever our size of our context window, which like with Claude 2 from Anthropic, it's like hundreds of thousands of tokens now in the context window. And so... Um, yeah, so we have these K, Q, and V vectors for all these historical tokens. But how does that relate? And maybe this is what you're going to get to. Oh, this is totally what we're going to get to next. Oh, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> perfect. Tell perfect. Me. Perfect. I, I bet that's where we're going to go with this is that ultimately, I guess what we're getting with all of these vectors for all of the preceding tokens, all the preceding words, this is going to allow us to predict what a good final word in the sentence apples are a type of delicious blank, right? Is that what, when we get to floor five, we'll finally be able to have a prediction of what that word should be? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. But okay, you sweet. made a very, very good question. Uh, you asked a very good question about um, the, like not looking forward, not looking ahead. And um, I want to put a pin in that because I deliberately omitted talking about masking in this, this explanation of uh, tension. We will introduce masking later on in this tutorial uh, in this tutorial <laughs> in this in this uh it episode. is a tutorial episode of the podcast for sure uh, effectively yeah so in this episode we'll later on introduce masking but for now let's put a pin in that and 
Um, let's just um, just assume that this whole process is done equally for all of these vectors. Although you are right, the like when we're creating a context-rich vector, so this process, what I described, was creating a context-rich vector for the word delicious. So that weighted sum of those V vectors that we just got to, that'll be the context-rich vector for the word delicious. Same thing will be done for the word apple. Same thing will be done for the word R. So we'll end up with six, in six separate uh, context-rich vectors, one for each word. And John uh, made an absolutely correct comment that, for example, the context-rich vector for the word type, which is the fourth word in our sentence, uh, will only will have to we, we will have to have a mechanism for it not to be able to look forward. So it's not going to see um, the word the fifth word of, and it won't see the sixth word delicious. But we'll talk about that in a in in a bit. So for now, let's just imagine that for each one of these con we have for each one of these words six words we have a context-rich vector. Great. So. That's the end of uh, floor three or box three. Now we're moving on to next floor, floor four. And things are going to get easier from here. So in floor four, we have a um, straightforward feed-forward feed forward neural network. And why do we need that in there? It's a, it's a two-layer feed-forward neural network. So you have this, these context-rich vectors. They go into a fully connected layer with an activated function. Uh, so they're 512 dimensional vectors. They go into a fully connected layer. I think uh, it's a 2048 dimensional uh, uh, hidden layer. And then after that, they go back through another fully connected layer without an activation function this time. They go into uh, the output layer. So basically, two full two fully connected layers, or two layers, yeah, fully connected layers. The first one has an activation function. That's the point of the feed-forward neural network. Uh, first one, it um, it adds more weights and uh, biases, basically adds more parameters to the model, so to increase its learning capacity. And uh, so it can model more complex relationships. And it also adds an activation function. So remember, up until this point, we haven't had any activation functions. We've only had uh, linear transformations, matrix operations without any activation functions. Uh, because that's how the transformer is structured. This is the first time in the neural network we're adding activation functions. So it this will help it learn even better and more complex nonlinear relationships in the in the data, uh, in the like in the linguistics. And another thing to note, very important, uh, this is not like obvious uh, if you're learning transformers for the first time. This feedforward neural network is applied independently to each one of the vectors. So we have six context-rich vectors that we've created, and they go through this neural network independently. They go in parallel, of course, but they, uh, they're they not mixed and matched inside this network. The only time inside a transformer that vectors get to somewhat interact with each other is in the attention mechanism, where the vectors can look up these V values from each other using the QK mechan indexing mechanism. Uh, apart from that, everything is completely separate. So each one of these six vectors goes through the feed-forward neural network and comes out on the other side even more enriched. Like they, their context enrichment hasn't changed because that was an attention mechanism. But now they've had, uh, you know, they've gone through a, a feed-forward neural network with more weights, with more with some activation functions. So they're they're even more enhanced, even more, in, uh, yeah, even more enhanced like, uh, vectors. And yeah, provides so more flexibility. For, flexibility for what? Uh, in in the whole thing that we're trying to accomplish, like by having oh yes, learning feed forward neural network, yeah, like by having a feed forward neural network anywhere in, when we're trying to map x to y, a feed forward neural network is always just going to allow you to have some kinds of subtleties be handled, um, some kind of flexibility in learning that otherwise might not be possible. So 
It's cool. Yeah, it makes a lot yeah, of sense to sure. have that in there. Okay, floor five, the final floor, right? So what you have in floor five is, so in the feed-forward neural network, we had a 512-dimensional vector go through the first fully connected layer of activation function you get. In the paper, they say they have a 2048 dimensional, so it increases the dimensionality, and then the second uh, fully connected layer reduces the dimensionality back to 512. So as an output of the uh, fourth floor or fourth level and as the input of the fifth level, we have a, a back to a we're back to a 512 dimensional vector for each word. There's six of them in our sentence. Now, uh, what we want is we want to map that to predict the next word. So we need that to map that to the uh, the vocabulary to our vocabulary, which like in the English language, let's say 200,000 words. So in the fifth in the fifth level in the fifth in the fifth and final level, we have a linear transformation plus a softmax function. The linear transformation is designed to map the output that we have so far, the 512-dimensional uh, vector, to 200,000 uh, words, to 200,000 nodes. So it takes basically, it's a neural network layer that has 512 in the input, no activation function, and it maps it to a 512, a fully connected layer, maps, maps it to a 200,000 uh, 200, um, uh, layer with 200,000 nodes. Right, so we get those outputs. Uh, they're called logits. They're unnormalized, just outputs in these uh, in this neural network layer. And then after that, we, we pass them through a softmax function, very similar as we discussed in the attention mechanism softmax function. And this is our second softmax function for the uh, transformer. Basically, what it does is it takes all those logits, those unnormalized values. We got two hundred thousand of them, one for each word in the English language, and it. Uh, each one goes uh, takes an exponent of each one and then divides by the sum of those exponents. So it basically creates a probability distribution. Now we have 200,000 values uh, in a probability distribution, uh, which in total add up to one. And those values are representative of how, what is the probability for each word of the English language to be the next word in this sentence. But remember, this is a key, this is <laughs> this is um, very important. Uh, part of transformers. Uh, something took me a while to figure out or get wrap my head around. Like I had a big breakthrough <laughs> myself, literally yesterday on this. Um, that you, we had six vectors going into this fifth and final level, and then we applied the linear transformation. It was applied to each vector independently, and we applied the softmax. It was applied to each of those, you know, vectors or whatever we got those two hundred thousand for each vector. We got two hundred thousand of. Uh, values after the linear transformation. And so the softmax was applied, we applied it six times. So we have six probability distribution. One for the word apples, one for the word R, or one as a result of the vector that we had for the word apples. We have a probability distribution of 200,000 values. Then we have another one as a result of the vector we had for the word R, another probability distribution of 200,000 values. And another one, another one, and all the way up to delicious. We have for delicious, we also have it, we had a vector, which was then converted into a probability distribution with 200,000 values, which add up to one. So that's a very key, important thing. Now, in order to predict the next word in the sentence, we're going to take the probability distribution of the last word, of the word delicious, and we're going to use those probabilities, and we'll just take the word with the highest probability, and that will be our next word. So in this case, it will be fruit, right? So that'll prob that we want the transformer to know that that's a high like once the transformer is trained, it will the, pro the word fruit will have the highest probability. 
in the probability distribution that came from the context-rich vector of the word delicious. The other five probability distributions, we're just going to throw them away. We don't need them. They're not used in inference. They're absolutely useless during inference. So they're, but they are useful for training. They what, are. Like, is and that what we can? Yes. Okay, okay. Because I we'll was like, why that. are we doing all that compute for nothing? Someone should have I know, right? I know. Like, <laughs> so imagine if you have, if you have an input of a hundred, like a thousand words, like a context, that's why context window, you know, like is hard because like if you have a thousand words input, you're going to have a thousand probability distribution. You're only going to need the last one of them, right? For inference. For inference, exactly. So we'll get to this in a second. So let's just sum up what we have so far, right? So the levels. Uh, on level one of our building, we have um, word embedding, right? We're training words into vectors which contain semantic meaning. On level two of our building, we have uh, positional encoding. We're adding positional encoding to these word embeddings because uh, transformers take ingest all of the input at once, not sequentially. That's their kind of like disadvantage, but we're making up for it with positional encoding um, to let the transformer know in which order these words actually came in the original sentence. And on level three, we have the heart of the transformer. You can think of it as like it's in the middle. It's, 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 in the, it's the heart is in the middle. Uh, it's the self-attention mechanism. Well, actually, the correct term for it is the masked multi-head dot product self-attention. So we haven't talked about the masked part. We haven't talked about the multi-head part. We'll talk about those separately. But it's called the dot product. We know why. We know we've discussed why it's a dot product. It's a dot product self-attention. It's, it's attending to itself, uh, to the the sentence itself. So we've got the self-attention, and the the reason why we need self-attention is uh, we have vectors that have semantic meaning with positional encoding, but we actually want vectors that also have contextual meaning because contextual meaning is extremely important in language, and uh, that is achieved through the uh, Q vector to do the query and QK combination create the the kind of like VLOOKUP if you're thinking of Excel terms or like the indexing if you think of database terms like Q and K combination is the index whether we want it or not well K is the index Q and K is like the answer whether we want that or not that that in our context and V is the value that we want to pull from each word into our context so the QKV vectors uh, together work to create the self attention that's done through dot product then a softmax uh, and then a weighted sum of V values. Uh, that's the self-attention part. And then after that, on level four, we have uh, the feed-forward neural network, which has two fully connected layers. Um, the first layer of the uh, feed-forward neural network is, in the original paper, four times larger. So far from 512, it goes to 2048 uh, neurons. Uh, that's the first place and only place where there's an activation function. It adds um, uh, flexibility, as John pointed out, to the learning and then after that, it goes back from 2048 back to, to, to 512 uh, dimensions. The next uh, layer, that's our feed-forward neural network. And then after that, on the final floor, on level five, we have a linear transformation plus the softmax. Linear transformation is designed to go from 512 dimensions to the dimensionality of our vocabulary. For example, 200,000 words in the English language. Uh, and the softmax is designed to convert uh, that into a probability distribution. And all of this... Very important to keep in mind always, all of this is done for every single word. So all the way, if we have six words, it's done for our six words. We do a thousand words, we do it for all thousand words, all of these steps. Okay, that's the summary. All good? Yeah, wow. Uh, this is, as you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, uh, I've now been the host for over 300 of these episodes. And we've definitely never had an episode this deep in the weeks. <laughs> it, is, it is a record. 
So it's, it's a bit of an interesting experiment. Like it's going to be, there's probably going to be some people out there that are like, wow, this is the most valuable thing that's ever happened to me in a podcast because it's so rich. But like, as you said at the beginning of this section, when we got into the five boxes of Transformers, this might also have been, yeah, it, it, it tricky for people to track, especially if they don't have a neural network background. But uh, very well done, Kirill. I mean, Thank certainly you. for this podcast medium, you are stretching the boundaries of what's possible. And I think for some folks out there, it's going to be slammed up. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks. Um, yeah, and hopefully we'll, we'll do our best to include as many additional materials in the pot, in the show notes. So if people want some references, we'll probably even, uh, I'll add some slides from the course. Like I'll just um, take some screenshots from the slides from the course. So we'll throw them in there as well. And uh, so people can, uh, you know, like follow along as well in, in maybe some, there'll be some visual aids. We'll add them in there. If, if you are struggling to keep up, check out the show notes for the podcast. This is really important stuff for, like, I, I can't stress enough. So important for your future career. Like if you understand all these concepts, they're not extremely complex. Once you, you dig into them and, and get your head around them, it'll be a game changer for your future career. Like as we discussed at the start of the episode, I'm glad we did. Like LLMs are here for at least the next few years are going to be um, disrupting businesses, industries. Uh, people are going to be building careers around them. They're going to be more and more um, uh, per pervasive. I don't know if that's the correct word, uh, but based pro proliferation. There'll be a proliferation of yeah. LLMs. Pervasive is right too, for sure. Yeah. They will pervade more and more and more. Nice. Yeah. So this could be a good point if this has already been an intense amount. This could potentially be a good spot in the episode to take a pause and kind of maybe simulate a bit of what has been covered. Because um, now we're going to expand on that to, yeah. To, so we're going to expand on the foundations, these five boxes, these five levels of transformers that Kirill's gone over to talk about inference and training time. Uh, what we do, sorry, what we do at inference versus what we do at training time. Um, and so, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's dig into that. Uh, so we alluded to this a little bit. Um, yeah, so talking about, for example, having all those probability distributions for each of the words, but at inference time only needing the final ones. So maybe let's pick up from there. Okay, yeah. So uh, just quickly, we're going to start with inference, and then we'll talk about training. With inference, um, Indeed, you only need the last one. So let's say you have a prompt and you, uh, with ChatGPT, you put in a thousand words of a prompt into ChatGPT and um, what it will do is it will ingest that whole thousand. It will go through a transformer. As a result, it will have 1,000 of those probability distributions, one for every word, one as a result of the vector of each of those words. And uh, we're only going to use the last one. So 999 of them are not going to be used. The last one, the thousandth probability distribution, will tell us what the next word is supposed to be, right? So because um, this is because that context-rich vector, which we had for the thousandth word, it had context about all of the words that came before it. So the probability distribution should be able to predict the next word. And that's what exactly what we're going to do. We're going to pick the word with the high, of the English language with the highest probability from that probability distribution. That'll be our first or well, thousand and first word. Now we're going to what ChatGPT does next. How does it generate a lot of text? Like how does it generate like a whole paragraph of text? Well, what it does next is it takes this one thousand and one words now that we have, and it puts them through itself again. 
And uh, as a result, we will get 1001 probability distributions. We're only going to use the last one, the 1001st. We're going to discard the first thousand, and we're going to get the, the next word of the prediction, which is going to be 1002nd word. Now it's going to take the 1002 words that we have and ingest them again. And as a result, 1002 distributions. We only take the last one and uh, get the third word or 1003rd word and so on. So it will keep generating words like that uh, all the way until it generates an end of sequence token, EOS. Uh, that token, the EOS token, is also part of the uh, vocabulary. It's one of those 200,000 words that we have. One of them is the end of sequence token. And when the probability for that token is the highest, it will be selected as the next word in the sequence or in the output sequence. And that will be a signal to ChatGPT or whatever GPT model to stop basically generating there. So that's how inference happens. Um, and so when you see ChatGPT, when you ask a query and when you see ChatGPT um, entering one word at a time for you, like, like outputting one word at a time, it's not just like a, a cool thing they've done to make it look cool, like it's generating one word at a time. It's actually exactly how it works. Like transformers take in your input all at once, but they generate one word. Then they take all the input and generate. So every time it's re, um, re-invoking itself until it gets to the end of sequence token. Um, and also the other thing you might notice is like when you're speaking with ChatGPT in the same chat uh, for a while, it gets slower. Like I've had this experience a lot of the times. Like, and um, I'm, you know, I don't work for OpenAI, so I can't comment on this exactly. But my guess is that what is happening is that it's taking all of your previous conversation and putting it in into itself, right? So it's generated a paragraph of output. Now you ask another question. It's taking your question plus everything you had before up to the context window limit, which right now I believe is like 32,000 for ChatGPT. It's taking all of that, putting it back into itself, generating more, and so on. So the more you talk with it in one chat, the more slower it will get until it reaches that context window, and then it's just going to be the same amount of slow uh, going forward, as I understand. So that's how uh, inference works. That's how it generates new words. I guess the only other comment here is that uh, what we discussed here so far is called greedy sampling where you have this probability distribution, you take the word with the highest probability. Uh, there are other sampling techniques. For example, you could take the words, the three words with the highest probabilities and then take a random one of those three words. And when you click in ChatGPT, you click regenerate um, output, you know, that refresh button, it will give you a different answer well, often because it's not using greedy sampling. It's not always just taking the, the words with the highest probability. It's, it's mixing it up a little bit to give some variability of the output. So that's inference. Nice. All good. And to really quickly there, the uh, at the time of recording, the uh, OpenAI model with the largest context window is GPT-4 Turbo, also known as GPT-4.5, and that has 128,000 token mm. context window. So that's about yeah. 300 pages of text that it can handle in a single prompt. Yeah, that's that's quite that's quite a massive massive context window. Okay, so now we're going to talk about training. <clears throat> training is uh, where transformers are super, like where they where they are super efficient. They're the the state of the art. Like as we discussed, they're not so efficient in, um, uh, what's it called? They're not so efficient in inference. Uh, they could be more efficient. They're they are redundant operations, but in training, they're like the best. So what we do is we take a large corpus of text. Just think of, for example, all of Wikipedia. Lots and lots of data, lots and lots of text in there. We take this text and we break it down into segments. 
typically segments are just basically chunks of text that are the size of the context window. So you just take all of Wikipedia, put it into one huge document, and then you break it up into context window segments uh, that fit exactly into the context window of the transformer. Um, then each segment is fed into the transformer one at a time for training. Uh, this, of course, can be parallelized. Now, we, we're going to look at what happens with one, se one segment when it's been trained. For simplicity's sake, we're going to take a, an example, a smaller example. We're going to take the uh, sentence we've been working with. We're going to take apples are a type of delicious fruit, which has total seven words. And we're going to pretend that's our segment and see how the transformer is trained. Right, so um, you would think that what's, what would happen in this kind of uh, scenario is that you would take apples are a type of delicious blank, right? You would take out the last word, you would feed in the everything except for the last word, and you would want the transformer to predict the, sem the seventh word. You know, that's what we are naturally kind of inclined to think. Well, at least me, with my uh, limited exposure to, or the, the amounts of things I've seen about AI, like I'm like, okay, that's probably the way it works. But actually... It's much smarter than that. Architecturally, transformers blow everything out of the water. What happens is all seven words are fed into the transformer. And then they, all seven of them go through these five, um, five levels we talked about, or five levels of our building. So the token embedding, positional encoding, the self-attention mechanism that feed for a neural network, and the final um, linear transformation plus softmax. But let's go back to, and, and then we get these probabilities for each one of these seven words, we have uh, a probability distribution and which results from the vector that that word was represented by. But let's go back to the softmax. And this is where we go back to the pin that we put in uh, in our conversation earlier, John. Basically, uh, the masking. So what will happen is um, the transformer has this additional mechanism inside the attention uh, mechanism, which is called masking. And it doesn't allow um, it doesn't allow any word to look at the words that come after it. So, for example, in the case of apples are a type of delicious fruit, the word apples will only when it's doing the QKV mechanism, it'll only be allowed to look at itself. It can't look at any words going after it. The word R, so apples are, so the word R can look at itself and apples but it cannot reference any of the words that go after it. Um, the word type, which is the fourth word in our sentence, it can only look at apples are a type. So you can only get context. It's allowed to only get context from those words. It's not allowed to get context from the, for the, the words come later. And yeah, you know, yeah. the apples, yeah. Uh, yeah, a really key thing here though, it, just to reiterate for our listeners, is that this is for these decoder only models like the GPT series models. If you have, some other architectures, um, like the BERT model that we talked about now quite a, quite a long ways ago in the episode, that kind of encoder architecture, the B in BERT stands for bi-directional. Um, and so it can actually use information from the future of the sequence, because with that kind of encoding model, we're not interested in predicting the next word, which fundamentally you can't, <laughs> if you knew what the next word was going to be, when you're trying to do next word prediction, that's cheating. <laughs> you're not, mm -hmm. You don't need a model to do that. You can just know what it is. Yeah. Um, but when you're when you're doing an encoder type of transformer, um, that extra context of what's happening ahead of a given word can be useful and can be used for some downstream task. Yeah, for sure. And that's also uh, like you're right. This uh, masking is only applied in the decoder part. In the in the original paper where you have encoder and decoder, 
the encoder, you know, like it's, it's used for translation. So the encoder can look at everything. When you're translating a sentence, you're able to see the whole sentence and then you generate word by word your translation. So in that case as well, uh, there's no masking in the encoder. So you're absolutely good. Good point. That's only a decoder thing. Um, so and so you have this masking. So depending on the word position, all the other words to the right are the, the later words are masked. And it's also called triangular masking. The reason why it's called triangular masking is if you write out all these words in uh, in a matrix, like uh, as uh, as the columns and the rows. So you take apples are a type of delicious fruit. You write them as the rows, and you write them out again as the columns. So you'll have a matrix of seven by seven. Um, and on the left, the, the columns are going to be uh, which word uh, you are creating a context-rich vector for, and the columns are uh, represent which words that a context-rich vector can reference, is allowed to reference. Well, the way it works is like the first uh, row will only have the first column, right? Only apples, it can only reference itself. The second row can reference two words, apples are. The third row can reference three words, apples are a, and so on, and so on, so, so, and so on. So, Basically, uh, you will notice that in the top right corner, you have this triangle, fo triangle, triangle forming, which is like those words are blacked out, like they grayed out. They're not allowed to be referenced by that uh, the word that we are creating a, a context-rich vector for, which is in that associated row. And so that's why it's called a triangular mask. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and that's how we create these context-rich vectors. Um, and the way the, the mathematical way that it works is it's very simple. It's basically once you calculate those dot products and before you apply the softmax for the words that you're not allowed to uh, reference, you add this triangular mask and it basically um, uh, the where the words you are allowed to reference, the mask has a zero. Where you're not allowed to reference, it's a negative infinity. So effectively, you're replacing the dot product. Uh, you calculate the dot product for each one of the words. But where you're not allowed to reference that word, that dot product is re replaced with negative infinity. And when you apply the softmax, it'll become a zero, right? So when you do the weighted sum, it'll be a zero. So it won't allow you to get to the V value behind the word that you're not allowed to reference. Um, so that's uh, how the uh, masking te uh, technique works. And effectively, what we get in the end, so in, in our case, we have seven, seven words. Apples are a type of delicious fruit. In the end, we will get, after the fifth level, we will get um, a probability distribution from each one of these vectors. And if you think about it, because let's take the word, for example, apples, it was only able to reference itself. It didn't know in the attention mechanism, it didn't know what else is happening in the transformer on the, the next words. And moreover, as we discussed, the words, the vectors in the transformer never get mixed between each other. The attention mechanism is the only time when the vectors can somewhat reference each other. So the word apples along the whole time, the vector for the word apples has only been exposed to the vector for itself, the, the V vector, the KQV vectors for itself. So effectively, this probability distribution that we have uh, for, from the word apples is a probability distribution as if our segment only had the word apples and it predicts what the next word should be, right? And if we take the apples are, and we look at the, the probability distribution that we got from the context-rich vector for the word R, right? That context-rich vector was only allowed to reference the words apple, apples and R itself. It wasn't allowed to reference anything else. So the probability distribution that we got from the word R is as if we were doing a segment with just two words, apples R. So it's predicting the next word. 
And then we keep doing that. So for example, apples are a type. For those, for the probability distribution of the word type, well, the vector that it was based on only ever referenced apples are a type. It never saw what's coming next in the sentence. So it's as if that probability distribution would be the same if our whole segment was only apples are a type. So it's predicting the next word, right? So now all of a sudden, these seven probability distributions that we have, we in one go, instead of one training, we can do seven trainings, right? We can do seven, we can calculate seven errors because the, the probability distribution for the word from that we got from the word apples, from the context-rich vector of the word apples, should be predicting, we wanted to predict the word R. The probability distribution we got from the context-rich vector of the word R should be, we wanted to predict the word A, and so on and so on and so on. The one we got from the word type, the fourth word, should be predicting the fifth word. The one we got from delicious should be predicting fruit. The one we got from fruit is still useful to us because it should be predicting end of sequence, right? The next token after is end of sequence. And because that, that probability distribution has context of, of the whole sentence. So all of a sudden, we can calculate not one error, we can calculate seven errors, and we can back calculate the loss function of seven errors, backpropagate it through the whole neural network and adjust our weights. So this was a simple example. Now imagine you have, like we discussed at the beginning, you take the whole of Wikipedia and you break it out into segments which are exactly the size of the context window of, you know, for normal chat GPT-4, 32,000. Now in one go, the transformer calculated 32,000 probability distributions. And in one go of the transformer, you get to train it 32,000 times. You get 32,000 errors, you calculate the loss function, you backpropagate it. So effectively, this is the mind-blowing power of transformers. You're getting in within segment parallelization. You can parallelize it across batches. You can send, you know, uh, a batch of you can do a batch of segments at the same time across different machines, and then calculate the loss across batches and backpropagate it that way. But also within each segment, you're getting parallelization. So transformers, and this is like extremely, uh, extremely powerful insight. Transformers are super powerful. Not only because like they're efficient and matrix operations and they're elegant in their solutions and so on, but one of the biggest advantages is that they have this double parallelization, the in within segment parallelization that we just described, and also the parallelization you can achieve through hardware, which is batch parallelization. And through this double parallelization, that's why you can throw a lot of money at it, a lot of data, and you can train. The more basically GPUs you can put towards it, the more money you can throw towards training it. Um, the more you can get out of it because it just parallelizes so well. And this is a very inherent architectural by design solution of transformers that we're taking advantage of these days. Nice. So now going back to my question uh, from a while ago, when you were getting to the end of your five boxes of transformers, your five levels of transformers conversation, yeah. I was I was talking about, oh, like, you know, you know, why would we create all of these vectors for every one of the words? You know, certainly for yeah. inference, it doesn't seem like we need it. And you agreed. Now the whole picture makes sense. So that during training, we're not just trying to predict some of the words. We use all of the training the data that we have. We might as yeah. well, like you were giving like the apples are, apples are yeah. a type. Um, apples are a type of delicious. Like you get, you might as well, you have all these training data. And so you can use each one of these steps in the sequence of tokens. So if you have, <laughs> yeah, like if you have all of Wikipedia to train on, then you might as well train at each 
next word in Wikipedia. And if you have all the internet to train on, then train on each next word on all of the internet. Um, that's going to yeah. give you the, the most amount of training data possible. Um, very cool. And then, so just one kind of uh, question for you is, I guess, the correct token. So at that, uh, in that seven word sentence that we've been working with throughout this episode, apples are a type of delicious fruit. I guess the correct token to be predicted after that is the end of sequence, that special EOS token, yeah? Yep, exactly, yeah. That's that's the correct token. That's what, uh, because that's our uh, se segment, uh, our segment. It's it's more, like, there is a bit of, like, additional tweaks that you need to do. Like, if you're taking all of Wikipedia and you're breaking it down by context window, well, your context window might just end up being in the middle of a sentence. So the end of sequence token might not be the correct one to be predicting afterwards. So you might, you know, like it's it's architectural choices. You might break it down differently. You might stop it a bit earlier before the 32,000 or the context window size at, at a full stop or at the end of the paragraph. Or you might choose not to use the prediction of the last uh, the last token because you, you're not sure that that's the end of sequence token. So that's kind of like more, more detailed, uh, nuanced things. Uh, but in, in a nutshell, yes, in our example, it would be the end of sequence. And the other thing you pointed out there, uh, which is very valid as well, very important, is that by doing it this way, uh, we're exposing the transformer to variable lengths of input, right? So we don't have to feed it, oh, you know, five word sentences, a hundred word sentences, a thousand word sentences separately. We just give it the context, the, the maximum we can, and inherently by design is going to train on one word sentences, on two word sentences, or three word sentences, on four words, all the way up to your context window size. So it's an additional, um, you know, like um, automatic advantage of transformers that you don't have to think through how you're going to train them on different size of data. You can, you know, like, again, you can make that more nuanced if you want to, but ultimately it's inherently built in that it's already training on all variability or all variations of input sizes. Nice. All right. So you've given us an amazing introduction to transformers, to attention, and therefore to large language models. Why ultimately are transformers so powerful? Why, when we take this attention mechanism that you've described, these five levels of the transformer, and we scale it up using all of the parallelizations that you recently described in this episode, why is it the case that all of this ends up being able to be at this time of recording, by far the most nuanced, mind-blowing tool that humans have ever created. Yeah, it, it, indeed, indeed. Like it is really mind-blowing. Uh, it's very cool to watch talks of the uh, creators of Transformers. Like I found one of them on YouTube, and like it's really cool how to these you know, these eight people. Um, you, it's really cool to see how they were thinking when designing this and. Like each one of them had separate roles, and they're identified in the research paper. Um, and by the way, like the the order of uh, names on the research paper is not alphabetical or in order of contribution. It's uh, it's at random because they all feel they equally contributed. And it's very interesting to observe their thinking about how they were building this uh, architecture while having in mind speed, like speed and parallelization. They like. All of the solutions they were coming up with, uh, they were considering that, and I think that that's that's probably one of the the biggest reasons why transformers are so powerful. Because uh, 
Um, they use matrix operations, which are really fast. There's no like in LSTMs, there's no gated units and um, all, all those kind of other solutions to the vanishing gradient problem um, uh, that, that had to be put into LSTMs. There's no bottleneck that LSTMs had. Um, transformers are non-sequential as opposed to LSTMs, so they don't take the input one by one. They can take the input all at once. So that's why if you type in like, if you put into a chat GPT, like, I don't know, 2,000 words of input, you get an answer right away, right? Like it starts typing your prompt, like your prompt is 2,000 words, but you start you start seeing the result right away because it's not processing them one by one. It gets ingested all at once. Uh, and of course, it's double, like uh, double parallelization. I don't know if it's a completely correct technical term, like it's something I used to describe it for myself. The parallelization within segment that happens uh, through this wonderful um, just genius solution of triangular masking during the attention mechanism and the inherent architecture of a transformer plus parallelization, which you can achieve through through batches with, uh, which is hardware based. Um, I think when you combine all of those things, it just like like any model that is able to process all of the language that we have online uh, on the internet. Uh, it's like a perfect storm. We have so much language that we've been creating since the '90s that's available on the internet. Any model that can process all of it uh, is going to be powerful. It just so happens that transformers were built with speed and parallelization in mind, and that made them the king in this moment. Nice summary. Very nice. Cool. Done. Can we do a quick bonus trivia? I got a few extra points. Go for it, Carol. All right. So GPT model, what we discussed, those layers, right? Um, let's start with the attention head. So inside the attention block, remember how we said we create three vectors, the QKV vectors, they're 512 uh, dimension each. So from the, uh, the vector that has semantic meaning positional coding, we create the Q at K and the V vector for each word. Well, actually uh, you can, uh, that's one attention head. In reality, the transformer, the original paper has uh, eight attention heads. Uh, and how is that done? Well, the original vector that you have with the semantic meaning and positional coding goes through a matrix or is transformed with a Q matrix, but that matrix creates not a 512 dimensional vector, it creates a 64 dimensional vector. And there's a, uh, a K, K matrix, which creates another, which creates a 64 dimensional K vector. And there's a V vector matrix, which creates a 64 dimensional vector. But then, there's eight sets of those matrices. There's, there's three matrix, QKV1. And then there's QKV2. There's QKV3. There's eight sets of those matrices. And so you get eight attention heads, which are running in parallel. So the transformer can learn different things about the same sentence. Uh, it's a, an important thing to keep in mind is that uh, if I was doing an interview for somebody applying for an LLM job, I'd ask this question. When you're doing multiple attention heads, um, is your uh, input vector for this attention mechanism, which is the vector with the semantic meaning plus positional coding, is it split up into eight? Is it like cut into eight parts? The answer is no. It, it's not cut into eight parts. It goes through a matrix or linear transformation, a matrix operation, which spits out, you know, like it, uh, the 64-dimensional vector of the Q1 matrix, uh, the result of the Q1 matrix, the 64-dimensional vector, it's actually a combination of all 512 dimensions. So you're not separating the dimensions of the, Input vector, you're combining them to, to a smaller output. So that's number one, multiple attention heads. The you can the original paper has eight. You can have as many as you want. I believe the GPT-3 model had 96 of them. Um, in addition to all of that, like imagine all we did, all, everything we did, we had like a building of five floors, right? Uh, 
And in, on the level three, we've just discussed there's going to be eight attention heads or 96 attention heads. Great. But now take that building with five floors and put another one on top and another one on top and another one on top 96 times. So the GPT model, it's again your choice how many you want to do. The original, the transformer architecture has six layers. So these are layers. So after the output of this, these five levels, instead of predicting the next word, those outputted vectors that we got, the context-rich vectors after the feed-forward neural network, they go as inputs into the next level, into the level one of the next building. And then we get outputs again, and then go in. So that happens 96 times in the GPT-3 model. And why is that? Well, that gives it even more opportunity to learn, gives it more uh, to, to learn more complex relationships in, in, in the language, uh, understand more complex concepts. Like how can uh, ChatGPT answer questions on chemistry, right? Like that's a level of sophistication or poetry. That's a level of sophistication that might not be achievable with one layer of uh, of one encoder, a decoder. But when you put 96 decoders on top of each other, well, it looks like it's able to do really phenomenal things. Well, so making sure I'm getting this right. So 96, you said that number twice uh, for GPT-3. So there's both 96 attention heads in each decoder. as well as in each decoder, as well as 96 layers of decoders. Yes. So there's 96 squared attention heads if you ca calculate all of them correctly. Wow. Right. That's not the original design. And, um, you know, with new models, things might be changing. Uh, yeah. And I would urge people to double check this this number. Um, but the original, the original design was uh, six layers of encoder-decoder architecture with eight attention heads inside each layer. Uh, in GPT, uh, in chat GPT specifically, they uh, took it to the next level with 96 layers. And as far as I remember, 96 attention heads inside each layer. Um, and I guess the other uh, part of bonus trivia is uh, we already talked about that the original paper was written for translation tasks. Um, GPT is uh, just a decoder part, which is for generation. Um, uh, and and of course, like GPT can also do translation, interestingly enough, but uh, we're not going to go into detail on that. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out is, for me, diving deep into this really helped to understand that uh, ChatGPT doesn't have any reasoning or logic behind it, right? It, it doesn't understand and cannot think, it cannot answer your questions through thought. It can only answer your questions by uh, predicting the next token. But it still stands to up to debate it's good to understand that. It's good to like it helps me like uh, better um, perceive these large language models and like what they're doing. Like that they're they're not gonna like on one hand they're not gonna take over the world because they they can't think for themselves. They can't have a reasoning. On the other hand, uh, like Ilya Sutskever, who's in uh, who's in OpenAI and who's one part of these uh, research papers that we talked about at the start. Uh, he there's a YouTube video of him talking to an interviewer about this and the question is like maybe this is a new kind of um new kind of intel intelligence where you don't need reasoning but predicting the next word is sufficiently sufficient in order to uh behave like a human in order to think like a human in order to create things like a human and so it still stands up for debate but at least knowing um the the difference in like how we think and how we reason versus how a GPT or a large language model reasons, uh, for me, it's been really helpful. Very cool. Very cool, man. What an episode. It has been epic. 
truly. Thanks. And man. I've learned a ton. Kirill, I can't believe how much you and probably Atma now know about attention, about transformers, about large language models. Wow. And so, yeah, your course must be incredible. I am now itching to take it. So, yeah, <laughs> large language models, A to Z, available in the superdatascience.com platform exclusively. Um, exclusively. Fantastic. Check Carol, out. Before uh, I let you, oh, yeah. Sorry, John, just quickly check out superdatascience.com slash LLM course. Uh, you will see there the the curriculum, uh, the description, some images. So it just gives you a quick overview. Uh, before you decide if it's the right thing for you. Nice. And of course, we'll be sure to have that link in the show notes. Kirill, uh, before I let you go, as you know, having created that document for me <laughs> to <laughs> interview people from, before I let guests go, we must have a book recommendation. Do you have a new one for us since you were last on the show last year? Uh, I'm not sure if it's a new one. I may have mentioned it on the show before, but I think it's a uh, it's fair for me to mention it because I am rereading this book myself for the second time. Mm. The first mm. time Adlan and I, it's not its not a technical book. Uh, uh, Adlan and I first time listened to it in a road trip, actually through Slovenia. We were uh, on a road trip with uh, Ivana and her husband, Mitya. Ivana is one yeah, of so the people who contributes to this podcast. Yeah, Ivana is the podcast manager. She is the most important person on the show. <laughs> she is the one, two episodes a week. They don't happen every single week at exactly the right time for many years without an unbelievably diligent person. And yes, Ivana Absolutely. Slovenia is that person. So yeah, we were on a road trip there with Adlan. That's when we listened to it the first time. And uh, recently I felt the need, uh, the time, I felt the time came to re-listen to this book. Uh, the book is called uh, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. Uh, it's over 20 years old. It's a fantastic book uh, that uh, like the main two kind of takeaways is um where where are you operating in your life? Whether it's uh, your personal life, your romantic relationships, your work life, are you operating in a zone of incompetence, a zone of competence, a zone of ex expertise, or a zone of genius? And he talks about how to identify that zone of genius for yourself uh, in all these areas of your life and why it's so important, and also what prevents us. And the second like the second takeaway, big takeaway that I remember from back in 2017 is uh, the thermostat principle that. You know, whenever you things are going well in life, like your body or your mind operates like a thermostat. Like if if things are going, if you're used to a certain level of happiness or finance or whatever else, romance in your life, and things get bad, get go worse, you will find ways to get back to where you were. But interestingly, conversely, if you if things get better, you'll also push yourself back to where you were. And that's why you know, for example, we see the stats around lottery winners. More than eighty percent of them lose all their money within two years, you know, because they, their psychology takes them back to where they used to be. And I think um, entering this new, you know, if I, I can tie it into the times we live in, entering into this new age of where there's going to be a lot of change happening uh, with, you know, 2024 bringing in even more probably AI developments. I think it's extremely important to um, be conscious of your psychology and to enhance your psychology because as they say, Success, however you define it, however you measure it, is only 20% mechanics. It's 80% psychology. So it's really important. Like I feel in my life, I, I, I'm ready to take the next step in, in, in many levels, in many layers. Uh, and I feel like that's why I felt the need to reread this book again uh, to help me prepare my psychology for that step. Your life has many levels, many layers, and many 
attention heads. 96. Um, <laughs> squared. Uh, awesome, Kirill. So, yeah, thanks so much. If our listeners aren't already aware from your many previous appearances on the show and your countless uh, courses and everything else you've done online for millions of people, how should people be following you if they are new to you? Great. Uh, LinkedIn, great place to follow if you like. And also uh, Super Data Science uh, membership. We're, we've just revamped it and we've got a community, we've introduced community aspect. And so I'm hanging out there um, probably like twice a week at the moment. I'm going to be hanging out there almost on a daily basis. You can uh, hit me up, uh, chat. Uh, we will be having these interactive sessions get-togethers, parties, whatever else, uh, workshops. Definitely, if you want to interact in person, that's the place you can find me. Nice. In person, you mean you mean live? I mean live, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> live. It's becoming so like <laughs> Virtual. so normal, right? Virtually. Virtually in person. In person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, thanks so much, Kirill. It's been so awesome catching up with you and having all these insights, these deep, deep insights uh, that you and Adlana have dug up about LLMs, about Transformers, about attention. Thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll be catching you again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, John. Really loved it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that extra technical episode. In it, Kirill filled us in on the development of attention and natural language processing, the five stages of transformer data processing, specifically input embedding, positional encoding, the attention mechanism, a feed-forward neural network, and linear transformation and softmax. He talked about how encoder-only transformer architectures like BERT are efficient for natural language understanding tasks, and how decoder-only architectures like the GPT family are best suited to generative tasks. He also filled us in on how transformers are used for both training and for inference, and how they're scaled up to enable the powerful emergent capabilities of LLMs. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Kirill's social media profiles, as well as my own, at superdatascience.com 747. Given how unusual and highly technical today's episode was, I'd particularly appreciate if you reached out to me uh, to let me know. So perhaps by commenting on the social media posts that I make about today's episode to let me know what you thought about having so much technical content in an episode. We're definitely trying something different. And so let us know whether we should do it again or maybe not. <laughs> um, all right. So thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another exceptionally deep episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors. Please consider supporting the show by checking out our sponsors' links, which are in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how at johncrone.com slash podcast. Otherwise, please share this podcast, review it on your favorite podcasting platforms, subscribe if you aren't a subscriber already, but most importantly, just keep on tuning in. I'm so grateful to have you listening and I hope I can make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.